Welcome to episode 289 of TechSync, hosted by myself, Justin Vincent, and Jason Roberts. And on today's show, we have a special guest, Phil Amon. Well, hello, guys. We're recording this show from Phil Amon's apartment, and it's quite echoey, so I don't know if that's going to be picked up on the audio. But anyway, hey, guys. And I want to say I warned you about the echo. You did. <laughs> so it's not my fault. <laughs> All right. Well, we're like we're the itinerant show, right? Just new new place every week. Yeah, it's going to bring out a new vibe. Yeah. So for anyone who doesn't know or doesn't remember, Phil is a friend of mine from college. We did a first startup together, and uh, recently he moved back out to Pasadena after about being in Chicago for 15 years. I've been working mm. on him probably about once a month for 15 years, and finally, <laughs> finally <laughs> moved out. I mean. I, it's probably for the last 10 years he was going to move out in three months, three to six months. Oh, really? He was just, well, look, it's, I'm just going to wait till the summer. Well, you know, I've, I've, I've spent the whole winter in Chicago. Once summertime hits, I'll maybe I just want to, you know, enjoy the Chicago summer. And then it would just, well, you know, might as well stay till the end of the year, get my bonus. And then it would just repeat. It just goes to prove you never give up. I guess that's I why it's true. That's it's why he nicknamed you horse, right? Yep, that's his, right. His official, do, do you guys use that word here, horse? We do not use horse? that on the show, but but I know okay. that I, from speaking to you privately, I know that you call Jason horse and Colby is son of the horse. Yeah, he's Colt. Colt? <laughs> <laughs> he is a horse. You he's know. Colt. But we use horse nice. actually as a generic adjective too. Like people are horsey. Yeah. But he's a horse. But we were talking about horsiness and how it's a, that you have to be a little bit of a horse to get things done. You do. Yeah. So most most a, successful entrepreneurs are are horsey. Yeah, in their be. own way. I mm -hmm. mean, they may they might have different. They might approach it stylistically a little differently, but uh, that's you right. got to be a horse. If you don't push one way or another, stuff doesn't happen because the world people are generally just going to do whatever they're going to do. They're not. They don't want to really do extra work. They want to try new things. They don't want to make things happen. And you know, to make a difference, you got to get people out of their comfort zone and get them doing stuff. You got to be tenacious. Right, gotta be kind of a bully. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> bully. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've got we've got like what 288 episodes of Jason that's, bullying me. That's yeah. Oh, poor thing. has been bullied. Is it really? <laughs> Let me ask you this: Is <laughs> it really bullying if the other guy is just asking for it? Oh, right. He's oh, begging there you go. for it. Right. He's begging so that's for it. Just, it's that look on your face, that's classic, Justin. That's a classic bullying <laughs> thing to say. Wow. And that itself is yeah, it's begging bullying. for it. Huh? It's, look, it's a meta bully. <laughs> <laughs> it's your fault. Well, no, I just I think the the new name of the show should be the the education of Justin Vincent. It's true. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> sort of a long rambling way to like just improve his life. Yeah, yeah we're 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 only beating mm. on him for good in a purpose. loving way. In a love, it's yeah, a loving. It's beating. a form of love. Oh, it's a loving. <laughs> it is. It is loving. But it's it's an education for the listeners well, as like, well. It's like a personal <laughs> trainer. I mean, he he beats on you in the gym, yeah, but right. you're going to come back stronger next the next session, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, and I am so much stronger. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, that's a good point. Do you feel like the show has made you stronger? This is a serious question, right? Well, made me stronger. I mean, it certainly it certainly helped my uh, network. It's helped me build a network, and it certainly helped me build things like Plugio that I never had before. And you make a lot more money now than you built used to. Built and sold to make a lot more money than I used to. Yeah, I'd say. Yeah, yeah. I mean, moving over bullying, to huh? it's now the you iron, the, the iron Justin Vincent. You know? <laughs> the iron Justin. He was kind of Justin. He was like, Wait, I thought, I thought you, you, you shaped him. I really <laughs> thought your guy's nickname for me was Baby Girl. Like, how how does it? I, know, I think we'll retire that. Well, we'll retire that because yeah, it kind of right. makes me ill. Because I picture you dressed up like a little baby girl. <laughs> it's a baby, it's a solid. I feel nauseous. I'm fond of Justina, but we haven't really. Really use that. You'll Somehow. get a proper nickname, and when we hit it, you'll know. 
It'll have you ever like, seen the Ricky Gervais, oh, sorry, heard the Ricky Gervais podcast? There's this character yeah. on it called Carl Pilkington. I've just realized that I am the Carl Pilkington of this show, <laughs> which kind of sucks. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Said they, they, so he had a great show called The Idiot Abroad. Right, yeah. And Sandy and I used to watch that all the time when it was on. It was like, I think I ran for one or two seasons, maybe two seasons. Yeah. And basically, uh, was it Carl Pink? Carl Pilkington. Well, yeah. So Car- Carl was basically like this very, uh, I don't know what he's, it was kind of hard-headed. He had a very very distinct perspective on things. Basically, most things are a pain in the ass. And he was sort of a uh, curmudgeon. And, yeah. But he was funny almost without trying to be. And Which Ricky Gervais, of course, noticed and said, oh, we're going to split the shit out of this. Yeah, yeah. And so he just would send him to, the most, uh, uh, to what would sound like an extravagant vacation. Mm-hmm. And it would just be held, make him stay in the worst hotels. And do the <laughs> well, because most he has things. such specific viewpoints and very strange ways of looking at the world and if you listen to the ricky gervais podcast obviously they probably don't do it anymore but the old episodes are so hilarious because he's so specific in his strange strange viewpoints <laughs> strange viewpoints that was great you haven't seen that though no? i haven't but you know it sounds like i'm reading confederacy of dunces now finally okay which is on my list and that sounds like an ignatius riley kind of guy <laughs> the is kind that- of thing oh sorry Go on. no is that is that the kind of thing he's a curmudgeon he's always finding well, but, he, no, but he might say something like if you plant a baby and then you keep planting the baby, would it grow into a tree? <laughs> well, <laughs> not quite that bad. I mean, he's not, he's not, he, he's not nonsensical, mm-hmm. but he just says things. It's almost like he has this curmudgeonly viewpoint and he states it in a way that, I don't know, it just, it's, it, it's, it's ridiculous, but it's in some sense. You know, some I, sense I see where it's coming it. from. I see where you're coming from. But I it's see where you're coming crazy. from, but it's yeah. kind of right. ridiculous. And then yeah. you know, and then of course the way Ricky Gervais sets it up and puts him in situations, it's just great. It's great. Anyway, yeah. um, so let's. Uh, so you know, Phil's back out here. Yep, living his Woo-hoo. new California dream. So now uh, we have him on as a uh, you know, I my guess is he'll be an occasional guest. Occasional I hope he will. Yep. I remember when I first met Phil, he was he was fatter than me. Was he? Yeah. Oh, yeah. When did you first yeah. meet? Oh, yeah. you went up to Chicago and I said you should go. Well, I met him in Chicago, but I also met him in LA. Like he, he, was, he came to our house very briefly in Glendale. Oh, Remember you were there right. for like just, just a couple of minutes one Maybe, time? Maybe, yeah, I do. Yeah. I try to bury those memories. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but now he's like, uh, <laughs> that's right. You've, you've worked it, dude. How did you, how did you like uh, yeah. make the mental shift that I just seem to be unable to make? Uh, so, yeah. So I... St- I guess part of it was I. The impetus was I read that book uh, for Our Body by Tim Ferriss, and um, it was after reading his book that it kind of he he wrote it maybe to a Gen X kind of crowd where it really just resonated with me. It sort of clicked, and I remember yeah. having that thought when I was reading it, going, "I could do this, like this is this is possible," and it was credible. And then of course he was he was promising instant results. You know, his his pitch was, "Well, you do this, and then within two or three weeks you'll see." So it felt like a really low hurdle. You know, just try it for two three weeks. And uh, he's like, then once you see a little success, and so you that did snowballs. follow the Tim Ferriss for our body plan, pretty much. Plan. Yeah, um, I mean, I'd made minor modifications to it, um, but yeah, pretty much. And then uh, he's right. I mean, within two weeks, three weeks, I saw results, and then that kind of begets nothing. The succeed, motivation. Nothing succeeds yeah, like success, right? Succeeds. Once you get a momentum. And you yeah. see something's working, you're like, well, hell, I can keep this up, right? Yeah, and it yeah. wasn't hard for me. I think partly because I already had a fairly restricted diet. I was already kind of a meat and vegetables guy, and I didn't eat a lot of fruit. And so, you know, there were there were things I had to cut out. Um, you know, I got sugar in the diet in various ways, but it wasn't 
it wasn't a wholesale reinvention of my diet. Right, right. I had been chiseling away at it through the years. Like I remember going from Cokes to Diet Cokes, from Diet Cokes to iced teas. So I'd already kind of made like these, these sort of pinpoint adjustments. And I so see. when I got to the Ferris thing, it was, it was fairly innocuous. Well, the results, are, the results, the results are plain to see. I mean, and I also did exercise. But not for I mean, this the- is to Jason's point. Like when Jason and I talk about losing weight. Um, he mentions doing like steady state cardio and yeah. uh, I did that as well. I did 30 minutes on a bike and it, it was really low, um, low intensity. And then uh, towards the end I started running, but yeah, it's, they, they say you lose weight in the kitchen and you get fit in the gym. So I'd say 90, 80, 90% of it was diet. Um, and it yeah. wasn't too painful. I, I didn't count calories. Everyone asked me the two questions everyone asked. So just for the, uh, the listeners, the viewers, yeah, the, viewers right? <laughs> uh, the viewing in their imagination, you yes, people are imagining it. Uh, the, the listener, I lost roughly 85 pounds, 85, 90 pounds. That's great. Yeah. Well, we'll see the, the thing is, you know, I think Phil's right. You lose weight in the kitchen because it's hard to burn enough calories. It's hard for most people to burn enough calories to make that big of a difference. But once you start working out as well, you're like, damn, I just, that was a lot of work mm-hmm. burning 500 calories. I'm not eating that, right? right it becomes right. a psychologic mm-hmm. uh, sort of um, reinforcement, right? Yeah. You, 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 you eat less because you're like, oh, that's going to that's gonna be another half hour on the damn bike. I'm just going to yeah. not eat that. And then you work out really hard. And then you're like, okay, I feel good. I'm, I, I earned mm-hmm. it. I'm not going to give it away in the, ki- in the kitchen. So you kind of, yeah. you know, they you have to know how to kickstart your own virtuous cycle. And some people can kickstart that cycle through exercise because like Jason's saying, you start doing that and it begets like you want to then eat right because you want to capture those gains. You don't want to just give it all back. I, I do think that there's another component. Um, <clears throat> maybe I'm wrong, but, but let me know. You're a man of leisure. So... Um, <laughs> man of leisure, right? So, so I mean, uh, basically, not not have you know, you've had two years where you haven't kind of had to turn I up to an office right. every day. Like, that's right. So it could literally become part of your work to to make that happen. Well, you know, there is a greater there is a greater thing here, and um, I think that people focus on fat loss because it is a goal of theirs, and and it was certainly a goal of mine in in a specific way. But what you're getting at is really what I think is the larger question of lifestyle design. Lifestyle, and yeah. How do you create a life that? Um, in general, as like an umbrella supports a lot of your goals, one being fat loss. So if you don't look at your life, if you don't take a step back and look at your life from that perspective, it can be very hard to achieve certain goals. So yes, if you're working, you know, I don't know, 80 hours a week, you're under a lot of stress, you're not, I don't know, providing enough sleep for yourself, uh, it's going to be hard to achieve other goals. So you're right. Like I had to create a lifestyle. I had to change the broader picture and by kind of like blocking and tackling on a lifestyle level, I was able to run those other things into the, into the goal line. So I do think lifestyle design is where you should start actually. And I tell people that like really imagine what your life, what you kind of want your life to be like. And that if it's, if it's really magnetic, it'll draw you to it. And then it just makes the goals easier. If you, if you, if you sort of silo off weight loss as its own thing, it's, it's um, I think more difficult. Sounds easy, easy to say and kind of hard to do. Lifestyle design. Why? Well, because I mean, for example, in your case, um, well, I mean, just not everyone can just not work. I mean, you know what I mean? Like, how, how do you? Well, get here's the, the thing. I mean, here, well, here's the thing. Phil has worked towards this, right? So you have to be thinking of where you want to be. So right now, 
you've designed your life to yeah, be you're living now, your right? choices. Or not designed. Either right. you designed it consciously or you designed it without thinking. It ended up where you, without really having a lot of say in it. So I, where I am now has a lot to do with how I decided I wanted to live yeah. my life. And Phil could probably attest to that, like at every step of the way. I, I'm not going to do this because I want my life to be like this. I know? had values early off, and I, and I don't mean to say that um, these are everyone's values. They were just mine that I – there were a couple things when I was growing up that I heard, and, and they really – for whatever reason, they stuck in my brain. And one was, when you graduate college, live um, as if, live as long as you can, like you're still in college. Like, don't spend a lot of money. Mm -hmm. um, and I know that's obviously wisdom that everybody has. But I think, like, what happens is that people start in their 20s is they start to want to experience a, a lifestyle and they start spending money to, and that's their goal, was that. And they're, they're actually consuming that then. So those choices, well, I maybe for forgo certain things when I was younger because I saved very aggressively. What I was saving for was a time in my life where I could take time off because that's what I really valued. I remember Jason and I were talking about like growing up was like, I just want to like get degrees. I just want to be in school all my well, life. No, he learn. would say, we would have, when we were doing our first company, he kept saying that, you know, because it's always the occasional dream that, oh, if this makes money, you know, X, Y, and Z. But you're also, there was also very much along the lines of he wanted to buy freedom for himself. He wanted to be able to be able to spend year, multiple years of his life not having to work and do other things. Maybe he'd go back and get a PhD in philosophy or maybe he'd do some other thing, but he would always say that. So I always knew that that was part of what was one of his major goals. You know, he and and so when he was working, you know, he's in Chicago. I mean, he was and he can go into detail if he wants, but he was saving, like I said, aggressively, a significant portion we'd make. And he made a, you know, very good living as a high-paid corporate senior level developer and you know bonuses and things like that and he would just put that stuff in the bank live a nice life but not an extravagant life and then you know had you know i would say he was fortunate in sort of how some things worked out with the company but it was mostly to do with the fact that he lived well below his means and he's in and, and and was able to save a ton of money and so now guess what now he's free and so you can't really say well lucky for him like no he earned it Right. It's not lucky for him he lost 85 pounds anymore. It's, it's lucky life, for him. Lifestyle design. He it's earned been, it. He's been thinking that way for years. It was a conscious choice. And yeah, a few things might have worked out a little better than he anticipated, which always happens. Some things go worse, some things go better, but he was able to take advantage of it. And so I don't think there's a whole lot you can say with Phil and go, well, he's just kind of lucked out. Uh, yeah. yeah, which is what you're saying. I'm not saying that. No, no, no. Justin, but I'm just saying, I'm just saying when you said it's easy <laughs> yeah. for him to say or whatever, I just want to get the impression that like he put himself in a position to, to uh No, to I, do no it. I guess what I meant to say is the weight loss aspect is kind of easier if you don't have to contend if with If you a create job, a system of support, right. Well, a, you're right in like the sense that girlfriend um, and, so one of the things I remember vividly, so I got my MBA in 2008 for the, for the listeners. Um, oh, by the way, just for fun. Just he, for fun, he, he went he back got to the NBA at Chicago. No, it was a dream of mine. But it, it was, was just for like he's the guy who goes back to get his MBA, sets the curve for fun. It was and fun. Then, and it then was doesn't do anything fun. with Which the is, MBA. I love it. <laughs> just just Where for most fun. people go to MBA, they're networking aggressively, they're trying to get a no, job. But most people, most making. people get for fun, but most people go to do like a psychology degree or something, not an MBA. I I loved it. I mean, I, I just, I think it's so fantastic and it was such a great education. I don't, awesome. I don't want, I'll rant for hours. I ranting is the wrong word. I'm just going to be, I, I loved it so much. I would encourage anyone who's interested to do it. It was, uh, especially in the entrepreneurial world, uh, MBAs do have a bad rap in entrepreneurial circles. And sometimes I hide that fact, well, but now that I've said it on, on they're viewed, <laughs> they're viewed, are often viewed as mercenary. Yeah. 
and outlook like right. they're doing it because they're primarily motivated by money the accumulation of wealth which there's no there's nothing wrong with wanting to be able to make a better living right but it's when that is like when that is seen as like your primary secondary and tertiary objectives mm-hmm. you know and just like there's nothing besides just i make want to make more money it's just yeah. it's just people go ugh and i think you know mbas it's they all just do investment banking or management consulting where people we we think that you know obviously there's a ton of mbas who do it because they love well they do it for other reasons in general i think you're the exception doing it just purely for fun yeah, yeah well, you, you are you must i'm be. an exception because they they studied that while i was there okay. and they asked the, the students you know why are you getting this degree and it may not have been fair because it wasn't an open-ended question it was just three you had three choices one was networking you're there to meet people. One was you're there to get a degree for your job to get an advancement. So it was just having the MBA provided. Well, it, it kind of it's kind of union card for yeah, management. Exactly. Right? They you, they needed one to get ahead. So that was it. And then the third one was for the sake of the knowledge, you know, sort of yeah. purist. And I, you know, of course, I checked that one. I thought, well, you know, I thought well, maybe be half half of people there for the knowledge, and maybe the other half for networking i thought a small percentage to get ahead but it was actually majority of people were for networking i forget the exact number it was over half and then a lot of the other ones were checking the box just getting the degree and there's maybe five to ten percent they were there for the knowledge and it, it uh and i'll bet you always even less cause i think more people would like to think they're there for knowledge mm-hmm. i think it's more like three percent it's probably like it's two kind other, of sad there are two other people in the auditorium and they look and nod at each other like that's cool isn't it <laughs> <laughs> everyone else is like ah oh, you know i just came from work and i'm just in for the three hour you know accounting you know class yeah, or, yeah was that a full-time or was it an evening that was evening nice so i was okay. working full-time which i think was was a good pace for me i debated that early off you know quitting and going full-time versus the part-time and i i have to say I remember making that decision i thought it was a toss-up it was one of those life decisions when i look back at it i thought well this is 50 50. And then after I made the decision to do part-time, I was like, oh, that was the best. Yeah. Because I, I think- You have a it's life a, as well. Well, it's like chewing your food. You take two classes at a time. So yes, it takes longer to get through, but you're sort of savoring every bite. How long did you say it took you? Three years. As opposed to two? Yeah. It's not a big deal. It's not. Four might be a little long, but the fact that yeah. you got it to three and you is- go, I, you know, I went during the summers. So some people take summers off. So then you can kind of catch up to the full-time people who are doing- So what are the, the like fun things like that do you have in mind? Like other kind of three year degrees. Well, you know, it's you funny. Get answers, in the we, we talk about this stuff all the time. Like, he'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll be on some topic. He's like, oh, I had this amazing professor that talked about, you know, X. And we would just, we, you know, that's like, I would say at least <laughs> one out of our five of our topics that we talk about while we're doing our hour of cardio is, you know, because what, it's so applicable. Phil's you know, take. I'll tell you. you no, know, no, I, no. One of the, you know, like, the, like one of his, uh, you know, one of those classes or whatever. I mean, he, he did learn a lot of interesting oh, stuff. Oh, right, right, right. You'll talk about the MBA stuff. Okay, yeah. Yeah, in fact, some of the articles that you sent me that would be potential subjects today, I was reading them and I was like, oh, I have an interesting study. And that's why I picked them <laughs> out. Nice. That's why I picked some of them out. I said, you know, Phil's going Phil's like to riff on it. it. He'll be a riff on a couple Pushing of these it things. it to the plate. Yeah, well, I just figured he'd, he'd have a couple of interesting things to say. Right. But, um, well, you know, and I think I, for, one other thing I want to say is you had, when we were doing our startup back in the, or mid nineties here in Pasadena, he would take extension classes, UCLA extension classes, which you can take while not being a student in accounting for fun. So he would drive <laughs> his ass all the way over to the West side. And, you know, usually it's like after work. So he's fighting through traffic to go and take a two or three hour, whatever accounting class and set the curve <laughs> for fun. I remember that. I remember you were telling me one time, like the professor would be like, 
you know, he was like, like you were his like protege. Like, hey, you did a good job. You should go to the county. You're like, oh, I'm just doing this for fun. <laughs> I know. <laughs> right? It is a weird thing to like. <laughs> That's that really was weird. Thing. I mean, I could see he's like, yeah, I want to take Accounting. a film class or a sculpture right. class or things he, which are right. things he studied undergrad, or I wanted to take a philosophy class, but I'm gonna go take accounting for fun. <laughs> yeah, but the weird thing is he does those other classes that you just said, well, he like does. acting class and sculpture class yeah. and drawing class. Yeah, yeah. I have a general interest in a lot of stuff. I do like business. I mean, I have stronger attraction to business type subjects, but I do find everything kind of fascinating. Which is weird because usually you have arty people who know nothing about or have no interest in, in, in anything analytical or quantitative and vice versa, but he's kind of a split. So he's, which is like an ongoing issue for him, I've noticed in different ways it plays out because, you know, the kind of people he likes or wants to be around. So he'd be like, he's, he's already film, you know, he's film oriented <laughs> and acting oriented and he's like that, but he's also has the, some of the personality traits and, and interests of somebody who's very quantitative. I mean, he was a math major with me and, you know, he's the business side. So it's kind of funny. And it's like, I've noticed that he's kind of has to, as anyone who has multiple sides, has to kind of split their social network. There's a very, there's a very clear split between the people who he can interact with, where he can exercise that part of his personality. You know, because you're not going to talk about film in any depth with people who are just primarily MBA type people. Right. And you're not going to be able to talk about any of those type of business or entrepreneurial or quantitative topics with anybody. <laughs> Well, there is there is a group of people, and in 2010, I came out to UCLA to do that producing program, mm. that summer workshops, because I thought that's ideal. You've got film producers; they're essentially business people developing. You know, if you're a creative producer, you're working on the creative side, you're working with scripts, and uh, I was really excited because I'm like, this could be a fusion of all of it. You know, find that one thing that kind of that scratches a lot of itches, and uh, I have great stories to narrow. I won't regale you with all that stuff, <laughs> but. Uh, if you run the numbers on the on the the business, the film industry, it's really bad. Yeah, that's what I was kind of laughing at. Because he told me, like, like, basically, the message was from some of their lead yeah. instructors: don't do this. It's, it's like, a horrible yeah, exactly. business, it's a horrible right. profession. It's get away! You're not going to make away. any money. The studios mm -hmm. take all the money. Um, you're basically going to spend your life chasing your tail. At the end of it, you're going to come out broken and broke. Right? That yeah. was essentially the message. It was, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, with that kind of breadth of uh knowledge and topics that would be kind of good for writing right yeah writing is interesting you could be yeah. you could write in a very kind of a good tapestry with that breadth of, i like that word tapestry tapestry to his stories. no they would say write what you know so if you can write about something a lot of things you write about yeah a lot writing writing is one of those things that uh i don't know whether it's it's ever it feels like one of those professions that everybody kind of flirts with at some point in their life. Because mm -hmm. it has all the markings of awesome. You can write anywhere in the world. You can write by yourself. It's low cost of entry. It's bounded only by your own, you know, creativity. And you can self-publish now. And now you can self-publish. So I feel it's one of those, it's just a, uh, it's a tempting siren song. And I, I've definitely been tempted by it. The other, prior to writing, when self-publishing came out and that it opened it up, uh, trading was one of those things that, it seemed like in certain circles, everybody flirted with day trading. Maybe that yeah. was in the 2000s. It felt like that was the road that people were tempted by. So I don't know. Like I, I look at that industry, the numbers, um, I don't have them. So I can't really say to everyone listening what my personal opinion is on it. But I know people who do well. I know a guy who just started writing about a year and a half ago. And, um, you know, part of it is how those how they get paid. I know Amazon goes through different um, ways to compensate writers. 
and they re- I think they changed maybe six months ago and made it a little harder. They're they're basically, you know, in economics they talk about um, everything is about incentive. Everything is about incentives, and, and it's everything else is a footnote to that. So Amazon is trying to tweak the incentives to kind of get the material that they want. Uh, so they're shaping the world, and um, writers are going to writers are going to go in line with that because they want to get paid. Um, and some of these articles you actually sent me to, to to read are about creating incentives. You know, how do you incentivize? Um, which is which is itself fascinating. Well, that's <laughs> a key. I think a yeah. key. A key understanding to be able to be successful in life is understanding that truth and understanding that everybody has their own incentives, their own agenda, and they're Mm -hmm. optimizing for them whether you understand that or not. And the better you embrace that reality and the better you can learn to see what people's individual incentives are, the better you're going to optimize your outcome, right? So a lot of times it's about aligning other people's incentives. Sometimes it's about shading their, uh, their incentives. Say, let me, let me. Mm. figure find a way to make this an incentive that you're going to want or make some, you know but it's all about that in order to get things moving forward yeah. moving in a different yeah. direction so and a lot of times people are the people i find who get confused in life is they don't understand that They're like i don't understand why this is the way it is i understand the way it's like well if you break it down to incentives yeah and, and and then you will understand it. it all kind of derives from that it does it has huge explanatory power i'm amazed when people um Often I find, I talk to people who are going into a negotiation, whether it be for applying for a job or um, looking to raise capital. And uh, they, well, I'll be talking to them. And one of the first questions I always ask is, uh, well, what does the other person want that you're talking to? And they rarely have an answer to that. And I'm like, that's, <laughs> unless you know who you're sitting across from, what they're looking to get, what their incentives are, what motivates them, you're going to have a very hard time striking a deal. And their behavior may seem pretty irrational because, you're thinking what I think a lot of people do is they project their own incentives onto whatever they're looking at. They see the world and what they like a naive realism. They think the world all thinks as they do. And so that can be really scary when you're talking to someone who does not share your values. And, uh, and also with job interview, I think a lot of people just think, uh, I won't, I won't research the company. I won't know their corporate strategy. I don't want to figure out what their product line is, what they're trying to achieve because they have goals, believe it or not. These companies are hiring for reasons. And the better you can assess that reason, and, and Jason and I joked about this when I was in school, I would, I took tests. When I take tests, tests are meant to measure your mastery of a subject, right, in, in the theory. And, and, and so students study all the material. But they're constructed by individuals. And those individuals have incentives. And they, I can tell usually by listening to how the teacher is presenting the information, what they're leaning towards, what they consider to be the most important. So by playing the teacher in a sense, I don't mean playing it in like a negative way, but just like trying to understand their values. You say, well, this teacher values this subject, this and this, it's going to be on the test. Yeah, well, the the very first time we talked about that, it was probably like um, maybe our second or three quarters, maybe winter quarter or something. And um, I had a bad habit of not always going to class (laughs) because I spent too much time staying up late talking to people and I would sleep late and not go to class. So, when, but knowing he would go to all the classes, I, I, I showed up as uh, his dormer one night and I'm like, it was like the night before the f- midterm or the final or something. And I was like, hey, Phil, so what do you, uh, what do you think is going to be on the test? And he's like, well, he's talked a lot about, you know, he has to ask about this, right? Because that's one of the key topics. And he has to talk about this other thing because that's the other second 
key topic. And the third one is it's probably going to talk about this. And he keeps hinting about this other one. So you know he's going to ask about that. So that's four out of the five questions. And he's like, and eh, my money's on, you know, maybe one of these other things. And I swear to God, he like nailed it. I was just listening to going, that's kind of interesting. And I, I saw the test and my just jaw dropped. I was like, holy shit. He just <laughs> gamed the whole test because he thought about it differently. It's not, you may, yeah, you're there to learn the material and you, you know, hopefully you're trying to do your best to master material, but you also want to execute well on the test because that affects your options later in school and in life, right? And he just gamed it. And I was like, that is amazing. <laughs> but then after that, that I just, uh, I, you know, would think about that more and kept that in my mind. Did you do what in that test? I think I did all right. Yeah, I mean, the first two quarters, I was kind of a BB plus student because I only went to like one out of every four classes maybe. And I was kind of, I really half-assed it, do the promise the night before. It wasn't until the third quarter when I decided I wanted to get into what is called honors analysis at Chicago. And they claim it's the hardest math undergraduate course in the country bar none. And it's invite only and it's just this ridiculous thing and uh and we were in honors calculus which was sort of like doing calculus through proofs so basically you're redoing calculus but only only via proofs and uh you had to get an invite so i was like well i really kind of half-assed these last two quarters i have to totally destroy the third and hardest quarter of honors calculus to have a shot and i did i you know i went to classes i did all the problem sets i did extra problems you know and i showed up and i got perfect scores plus perfect all the extra credit on both the midterm and final but i still didn't get invited in because i had i had demonstrated chinks in my armor in the right. first two quarters and yeah. so i didn't get the invite although phil did phil got invited because he said he was getting near perfect scores across the whole time and did you did you do did you follow the invite up yeah i took that course man that was tough <laughs> i got i had a nice big piece of humble pie uh it was really tough well, i think okay this is that cliche, education's wasted on the young. It is. <laughs> I mean, I was what, 20, 19? Mm -hmm. I mean, it was crazy. Yeah. And it was a really hard class. I didn't have the focus I needed. I mean, these are really hard subjects for anybody. I mean, really. I mean, they really are tough subjects. And to put a 19-year-old in that room, uh, it, it, it actually is a lot about, you know, the discipline, which I don't think I had. I think a lot of people struggle with discipline. I don't know what it's like these days, but the problem with it, for me was in high school, I kind of coasted a lot because if you can rely on learning things at the last minute and I have a, a decent memory so I can hear a lecture and I can sort of remember it. And if the tests in high school are such that you can kind of anticipate what's gonna be on there, again, you add all that up, how much discipline did I need to win in high school? Very little. Right. And then, you know, you get to college, my freshman year of college, the math that Jason was talking about, remember I had A, B and B, C calculus. So it was kind so you of, had two years it, of calculus. I had two years of calculus in high school. So it was sort of reviewish. This is really, it was, I'm not saying it was easy. It was hard, but it was definitely made easier by having exposure to the material. And then, so my, I would say my really first adult discipline oriented math class was honors analysis <laughs> sophomore year. And I re still remember sitting there thinking, this is unbelievably hard. Um, I still remember some of the, the things that they talked about and, um, you know, really, mind-bending concepts like what is near you know like are two numbers close to each other and how, how do because you have to argue about like asymptotic and how numbers approach and i remember thinking like wait of course two numbers are near like one and 1.0001 they're close to each other and whatnot but there's a there's an infinite number of numbers between one and 1.0001 and 
Anyway, all that stuff starts borderline, as I tell the Jasons, like a borderline philosophy. And it gets right. really hairy. And, and if you don't put the time in, you're not going to get, uh, you know, a sad, <laughs> you're yeah, not going to so do well. A, there's a couple things about that kind of a class. I mean, you ever Chicago, you know, you're an undergraduate math, you're talking about top five, top 10 in the country. So this is like a Princeton or Harvard or whatever. So you're, you're, you're competing against incredibly talented people who have very, uh, have really good preparation. A lot of these people came in having been taking courses in college for, you know, multiple years when high school doing summer math camps, competing in math Olympiads. I mean, these are people who view themselves as future mathematicians or physicists and things like that. So they are, they're top notch, you know, genetically <laughs> they're gifted, right? They are prepared and they're mentally, and they love it. It's their passion. And so when you step in that ring with them, because you are ultimately competing against them, you know, the curve, there is a curve. And, and if it's 10 or 15 or 20 of these people on there, you gotta, you gotta really be, have, have a lot of those things yourself. You have to be very prepared. You have to be really gifted and you have to dig in and say, I'm going to really dedicate myself to doing this stuff and spending a lot of hours working with other people, going to office hours, TA sessions. And if you're just kind of phoning it in and showing up to lecture. And well, your just, life has to be all about that, right? You really does. You can't have any yeah. other interests, basically. Well, you can, but they have to be very limited. You have to be yeah. focused. I mean, it's not like, you know, and some people like to say like, well, I can't do X because that's all you do. It's like nobody is that extreme. But if you're juggling two or three other things, like Phil was and like I was, I mean, you know, I was playing varsity sports and doing work study and I had social life and Phil had a social life and did a lot of improv comedy and acting. So he, girlfriend, so I mean, he had stuff he was doing and whereas there are other people, they were just math, right? They'd math and they did the classes and they might have a few other friends to hang out, but they weren't playing varsity sports and they weren't right. doing improv and doing plays yeah. and stuff. Yeah. You know, I only just realized this conversation that you guys went to, uh, College together. Well, you didn't. <laughs> I didn't I'll put the pieces together. I didn't. I, like I didn't. I didn't quite I said, work it out. Holmes, there. <laughs> I listened to the clues. <laughs> I, I think I got it when you said you went to class together. <laughs> but you, you have never really spoken about that before. Like you, you guys mentioned that you've been in the company before, but you never mentioned that it. Had yeah, been. we met. Like, so you know, a, when I, did we you actually meet? say we meet? met in math class, but technically we met. I was sitting in the class, and he was standing outside the door, yeah. looking in through the glass. <laughs> kind of waving at him. <laughs> like, Where's that? This you got, like, no, we met in class. No, we met in class, and but he I, just never was there. How, how old were you at that time? Uh, so I just 18. turned nineteen. He did, yeah, eighteen, nineteen, 18, nineteen. Yeah, right. Yeah, I, there was a couple of times where I would be late to class. And I'd be on the board. Like I'd go to class, and I'd realize that the class already started. It's ten minutes in the class. There's only seven people in our class. Yeah, it's really small. As everybody else dropped out, because right. they're like, "This is crazy math. I'm out." So seven of us left, and it's pretty conspicuous when I'm not there. And I'm just <laughs> like, "It's gonna be really embarrassing." So I come and I look at the the the, the glass little window, window the, door. the door. It's like a, it's like yeah. a, you know, eight inches by eight inch door. Yeah. And I'm looking in, but I'm kind of standing at an angle where the, where the professor can't see me because he's at the board and I'm looking at Phil and you know, like if he was sitting and Phil kind of look at me like, <laughs> and I'd be like, I'd kind of smile. I kind of wave at him and he kind of like, give me this like, what the hell? Are you <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought it was really weird because he would skip class, but then he would show up to look in the door. Just to bug you. Just to bug you. Well, I didn't, I didn't understand hey, it. Hey, like, I mean, just cut. Like, you should be doing something fun. Why aren't you, well, why aren't you I didn't enjoying a, your day? I didn't have a watch in college. And... <laughs> 
<laughs> I would just. Is that why when someone asks you for the time, you tell them how to make a watch? That's right. Look, <laughs> so theoretically, you want a timepiece? This is what I would do. Let's start with the sundial. Is it? No. Um, so, <laughs> so what happened is like, so I, I'm, I'm late. I'd stay up till four in the morning talking with a bunch of people in the dorm lounge. Go to sleep. Wake up just in time to catch the bus from our dorm because we lived in a we both lived in this dorm that was right on Lake Michigan, but it was kind of like a mile and a half from campus or something. Catch the last bus to the dining hall before it closed for lunch, so I could eat breakfast at lunch. And it lunch closed. It, it ended it. It closed like 1.30, which coincidentally was the time our math class started. So I'd be in there just eating bowls cereal, bowls of cereal, whatever, <laughs> and then I'd be like trying to haul ass over to Eckert or Eckert Hall, which is the math building. And I'd be like, oh, I think I can make it. And I'd get there and I'm like, oh, crap. It's like eight minutes. I, and I could see the clock on the wall. And I'm like, not on my late. Class starts eight minutes late. And I'm just like, ah, screw it. You, you could have walked <laughs> through the door, right? What? You could have walked through the door. And I could have walked through the door, but I was just too uncomfortable. And I just like, you know, I don't, I'm just going to go to the... But not without a quick wave to Phil. Yeah, well, he'd see me <laughs> looking in the door because I kind of thinking about it. Like, should I go in? Maybe. You had guilt. Nah, you what? had a little bit of guilt. A little bit of guilt. Yeah. <laughs> Not enough to get As me to you go to should. bed. That was math. Was, yeah. there, was there much of a social life or was it all just studying when um, you were 18 and 19? Oh, well, yeah. I, well, well, University of Chicago was there parties? is known. Well, it, I remember it made some list and I don't know if this Frat is apocryphal or not. Well, they had a list of party schools and University of Chicago came in dead last and it was behind Annapolis Military Academy. <laughs> and uh and like or roberts college where it's like you can't dance after 8 p.m or something like it was literally considered less fun than i don't they, it was a really so at the time we actually didn't really have a student union we had um reynolds hall did was you kind have of, frats or is we that had, a different yeah, kind of thing we had frats no yeah. there was there were fraternities there were Are you were, a, were you members of a frat no no, no i wasn't i had i had I didn't drink, so a lot of fraternities about drinking. I and thought that you like so you you can opt out. You don't have to do for. I mean, like literally, I know nothing about how this works. No, I mean, been, so you don't have to be. You actually have to be invited in. You you and you are, guys weren't invited. To well, I they're they, just not. Fun no, I was. The, the, we were recruited. <laughs> I was recruited. There were, so there was one which was like the billionaire boys club. All right, called Pike Pike Cap Alpha. They actually didn't have a fraternity house. They actually had a penthouse suite on top of like one of these high rise things. <laughs> do you remember the Pike? I vaguely do. Yeah. yeah so they. So the funny thing is, is they were like, we're the really elite. You know, <laughs> we're the captains of the <laughs> right. sports teams and the editor. You know, we are. This is the thing. And a couple of the guys from the basketball team, because I was. Is before I got cut from the basketball. I was the last guy cut from the basketball team. So, I, a couple of the guys were on the basketball team, and they showed my room in suits, my dorm room, and they're like, "Hey, we want to talk to you about, you know, pledging at uh, Pike and Pike Cap Alpha." And, and you was, know, we're serious because we're they were very suits. serious. And I'm like, "What suits? What the are hell? we going to two guys? What do they do?" <laughs> my room like, "Dude, there's a couple FBI agents in your room." <laughs> hey, <dude. laughs> you're like shutting your computer down. Like, what the hell? Right. I didn't do anything. Not a, you know, so. Um, they show up and, uh, you know, talk to me about it. I'm just like, okay, you know. And then uh, then their, their president, Steve Wiebe, I remember his name. And he looked like a guy straight off of GQ magazine. Steve uh -huh. Wiebe? Wiebe, yeah. Hmm. He's like 6'3", six, 6'4", six, really good-looking, well-built. This straight out of, like, okay. GQ or something. He shows up and he's like, he's going to give me the, the hard sell. Okay. Like, you know. Top he, dog himself. He's like, you're... We want you on this fraternity. You belong with us. You know, kind of like this is this is the thing Welcome to be home. part of. Yes, yeah, so it was like this whole thing. 
And I was like, you know, I'm not really much of a joiner. I was yeah. going to say, you don't really don't understand. Know Jason yeah. doesn't join clubs. It was funny. He did not take well of that. But he was shocked. Like, what? Like, what are you talking about? Like, <laughs> like I'm offering an opportunity to join Pike. Do you understand what this is going to mean for your life or for your career or whatever? Like, this is the, hmm. you know, thing. And I was like, yeah, I don't really join. And he was. And then he got. <laughs> is that what you told him? <laughs> yeah. You said I don't join. I'm not much. I'm really not <laughs> I don't a joiner. Know, I'm a joiner. <laughs> he said, wait, well, you didn't matriculate wait, the college. Which, which do you regret more, not joining Pike or not becoming CTO of Uber? I don't really regret. <laughs> no, no, I definitely don't regret doing Pike. But it was funny thing was is he got he got so um, he got then he started to get kind of upset. He came back to Irma a couple times. Like he this was not one. He came like I think it was like three different times. He mm-hmm. came back. He said, "Look, we need to talk again." He's like, "Listen," and then he was like, "Listen, people are watching what you do, and so when you turn this down, like that's not doesn't look good." Yeah, and I'm like, I don't really think people are looking at what I'm doing, you know. But it was just, it was, it was pretty hard sell. They were pretty. He was particularly sort of upset and shocked that I enjoyed. But that was the one that was a funny. It was Hmm. sort of an an, that was the that was the first time he learned that not everyone could be sold. Yeah, that was a probably good life lesson for him. But. And I had, but you know, <laughs> not everybody's people. You're going to have one or two outliers. But I, I just had friends. I had, I, as always in life, I always I had friends in all different sort of categories, and I just would kind of bounce around. I wasn't like I'm one of these kind of guys, you know. And usually, when fraternity, I always pictured that like this is like this is my crew. This is the people. These are the people I hang out with. We're all kind of alike in this particular way. And I've never felt like I was that kind of a person. And I certainly. You know, just I never really saw myself as that. Now I had a lot of friends and a lot of different fraternities that I would hang out with. So but wait a second, you surely you belong to the the Nordic math nerd basketball playing group. Yeah, maybe if there was a fraternity like that. <laughs> but anyway, I so you know I would hang out with the, I would lift weights with the guys who were the football fraternity, football wrestling, baseball fraternity for Fiji, and I saw the all the a lot of the soccer team guys on the soccer team with me were in. Um, what was that? Uh, what, what fraternity was that? Was the one know. right next to Fiji? What was I that was never, house? I don't know. <laughs> so were you? Van I was really bad at that. I Whatever. Never, anyway, I never, I had you were Van Wilder then. What? You then that that movie Van Wilder, isn't it? Yeah, but except I actually got out in four years, amazingly. So. Right. All right. But Phil. <laughs> anyway, so like Phil tell a story, but he was a social guy too, just in a different. He ran in slightly different circles because he was more in the acting improv stuff. Right. Yeah. I'm I, I'm a joiner, I guess. I mean, I joined. Um, you oh, you are a joiner. I don't think about it like that, but I I definitely. I would say, if I was to think about that, I like belonging to groups that, um, I don't know, it gives me a sense of, I mean, there is a sense of identity that you get from it, but it also just provides an outlet. Anyway, that's all cheesy. <laughs> uh, to say all that, like, it's all recorded. No, it's <laughs> like good, goofy it's good. stuff like that. Um, but no, I joined an improv troupe, and I had never done improv in high school. Well, yeah, anyway, I don't think anybody did improv in high school. No, I don't think it was a no, big thing. So like improv is specifically comedy improv? Well, or, improv, or just acting in, like Improv... Improvisation proper probably would be just making things up spontaneously, whether it's funny or not, is uh, you know, <laughs> up for grabs, or even as trying to be funny. Yeah, I mean, we did improv. We all do improv in our head. You know, if you write, you're basically hearing the, the when you hear the characters telling you what they're going to say, and you take dictation, you type it in. Like a lot of writers hear things in their the, the character speaking to them. That's a form of improv. I mean, it is improv. Yeah, yeah. and you're just speaking it out. Um, improv was really new to me in college and I thought this was great. I'd found it and it just seemed to be, it was great and the people were great. They're just really funny. 
um, I had a great time. So I, I did join that group and that, you know, you auditioned and get into it and we wrote sketches. It's pretty much a model for, you know, the second city style. We do sketches, but we also do improv. Did any of those people um, go on to, to, to build to fame and fortune? Right. Um, yeah. You know, Tammy Sager was a, um, in the group and she was also in that math class that, and that she's like a wizard at math. Mm. Really, really bright. Um, well, you know, everybody at the University of Chicago is right. Um, so, but yeah, she went on. She's a writer now, mm. I believe, for, uh, she's, she wrote for a number of shows. And uh, uh, Dave Auburn, who wrote Proof. who was a big play. There, the movie was, uh, yeah. uh, oh, right, Dan right. Hopkins, was Anthony Hopkins and uh, Gwyneth Paltrow? That was Proof, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, the movie uh, the was movie. it the same I mean, in, in the improv like in the same way as you're talking about Jason was talking about math there where some people were just about math and then had barely any other side was it the same with kind of the improv some people were just about that and had barely anything else like those were the ones who were just super good at it because uh, it was just their whole life I think there were people who really dove into that world right. really hard I, there were a couple guys in the improv troupe who devoted their lives to performance but oddly i don't know if those were the ones who were the most successful hmm. i mean there was a guy who was in the group who who i don't even know if he went to classes anymore he was kind of like an on-campus dropout to some degree i, I have no idea because <laughs> yeah. i was always like that kid who felt a little uncomfortable asking personal questions right. so even though i was i was like curious i wouldn't go up to somebody how i kind of knew and say hey what's going on with you but he, he eventually did, I think, now this might be wrong, but eventually he dropped out and became an itinerant clown. <laughs> really? <laughs> you know, I mean it. Like, I think he left to produce street performance. I think he really found, you know, there is a certain, okay, I'll, I'll just take a step back. There is a certain intellectual type person who's extremely dissatisfied with life. It, it's, I don't know whether they're filled with ennui or whatever, but they don't, they don't like to be plugged into any kind of system beyond being a joiner. I mean, you've joined companies, you've worked, I mean, these people are truly Actually, not joiners. Well, you work, you work for Uber. <laughs> Still consult, never as a boy. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> Always got to maintain my distance. Yeah. Always at arm's length. That may be, that may be more of a nomenclature issue yeah. than an actual issue. But, um, but the fact is like some people really truly are not joiners or they're, they're sort of, I don't want to say anti-society, but they really want to be on the outside. And, and some of them are deeply intellectual. It's not simply a matter of they couldn't find a job. It's that they, there's something distasteful. And, you know, I've only met a, a few of them in my life. And some of them were... And this clown guy was one? You know, I'm speculating. I think that he had a lot of anger issues, which could stem from, you know, whatever... There, there's tons of ways that that can happen. The angry clown, <laughs> but the angry yeah. clown. But you know that. that I think though, what's heard the funny? I've heard of the crying wanted, on the inside clown. I've heard of the angry clown. He was That's really a, talented, and I, I mean, I hate to talk like this. I didn't know we'd be talking about this guy. I brought him up, but uh, he was a very caring guy. I think he wanted to, in a sense, help himself heal. So I think that some people. Okay, my observation is that some people are drawn to the arts uh, for therapeutic reasons. They may not understand it as such. Yeah. They may not be that self-aware, but they're in it because it helps them in a safe environment either talk or express themselves, and they fear that they can't in life. So it gives them a platform. Some people actually, when they get on stage or they get into performance, they feel more alive than when they're not. Mm. And it's it's a tragedy in some respects that they can't feel alive in their own life. But um, you know, it allows them at least to have that moment where yeah. they can. So, so I've met, yeah. And actually, the arts is what was a wonderful 
it is wonderful. Like Jason said, I mean, I've, I've spun in that world a lot and I've met some amazing people. Um, so, but again, you know, that's actually my, my feel like I have a little akin to, uh, I'm talking about myself way too much, but there's nope. a, the, oh, you guys on. are familiar with, I know, Rob, this is my texting. first podcast. This is texting. <laughs> oh, that's right. You guys, this is texting. The texting. only thing we do is talk about ourselves. That's right. So. It's very self-indulgent. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah. You do, you do a really good British accent, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. It's really good. I think the, the listeners won't be able to tell the difference between you talking. I could actually spoof you. Okay. Go on. <laughs> go on. I'll spoof. Go and spoof me. Yeah, go on. Spoof, <laughs> spoof me. Okay, who's talking now? <laughs> yes. Who just said that? Who, who just <laughs> said that? <laughs> she, they're gonna know it's me though, because I'm I'm laughing too much. Right. Um, I was gonna say like Joseph Campbell, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm bringing this up only because he studied religion, right? So he's he's studied all these world religions. Very knowledgeable guy. But I think I think, and I'm recording this right, that he lamented because he was always an observer and never a participant, and he would see people participating. And whether whether you agree or not with whatever this religion purports, um, he saw that these people were genuinely happy and genuinely engaged in life, and they had a sense of meaning and purpose. And even if from afar he looks at that and says, "I don't agree with that," they had that, and he kind of felt a little like, "Oh, you know, why don't I, you know, feel that way?" You know, I wish I was a participant mm-hmm. of some sort. I think we all have that in us where we want to belong to something. And getting back to my, that's I brought that up because it's sort of like a dilettantism. I have I love, love for business. I love the arts. I love technology, but I don't know if I've ever really said I'm a technologist or I'm an artist or I'm, so I don't, I, I envy the people who come up to me and say, I'm a hundred percent into acting. And I if just, if you had a gun against your head and you had to choose, I, you know, um, he just gets shot basically. <laughs> yeah. I hesitate there and he'd, too long. He'd and hesitate to get shot. I, that's that would happen. <laughs> you know, I just, you know, when I saw this thing, so now in our society, we always had to come up with like pretentious names for things, mm-hmm. but it's kind of works. I saw this Ted talk. It was called, um, sent by a friend, uh, multi-potentiates. Right. <laughs> multi-potentiates are people who are basically Renaissance people, mm-hmm. uh, multiple interests and whatnot. And, um, the, the Ted talk was saying that, in our society at large, we tend to steer children towards picking a focus. Like what is, what do you want to be when you grow up? When you want to be when you grow up is tends to be a singular uh, noun, not plural. You can't say you want to be a fireman and an astronaut. Um, so we start to shape people's minds into picking one thing. And then that, that steers some people to what they want, but other people who really can't choose, it sort of makes them feel inadequate because they don't have an answer to that question. Like you say, the gun to your head. Um, maybe I am who I am. You know, maybe that is the answer is there is, it's a false choice because there is no choice. It's you're a multipotentiate. You are all three things. You are a brain surgeon and a, you know, guy who does test, bake, pilot. Yeah, test pilot or, you know, you're a chef <laughs> or <laughs> you, you bake brownies and whatever that, you know, that is the answer. It's not that you got to choose. So I think it's maybe I believe that I have to choose because that's how my thought has been structured. I don't know. It's, I throw all that out there for people to, to gobble up and, and spit out. Maybe. It seems very relevant for today's kind of gigs economy as well. Just the sense that like life is just split up so much. It's like what Jason does. Like you spend X amount of time on Uber and um, then the other things that you do. Yeah. Well, I've always been, I always had to have different groups of friends just because I have completely different interests that don't overlap within the same group or whatever that, don't belong to the same group. So when I was a kid, even eight, nine, 10 years old in the neighborhood, I had my sort of smart friends and I had my athletic friends and then I had my social friends. You know, there's ones you go and, and that's where you would, uh, you know, 
it's called chase the girls group right <laughs> there was the guys that like shame on yeah you. right right so that's the, those are the guys that <laughs> but you know, they're so the, pretty you, that, you know the prettiest girls liked and they had the best shot but you the other guys were too awkward right they, they were not going to be able mm. to roll in that world and then you had the, the athletic kids like hey let's go play football let's play baseball let's play soccer whatever they were always up for something and then you had your friends you'd play chess with or we'd play these sort of really complex war board games or whatever and and there just was no way that for me to satisfy all those types of interests with one friend. Was there ever an event where, where you brought them all together for a party or something? No. Right. It was just sort of, well, you know, my house, I was lucky enough that my house was centered at sort of uh, three streets came right in. And we had this giant field next door. It was an, it was an empty lot that um, they couldn't build on. I remember her because there were like a bunch of pipes throughout that, throughout the subdivision came under there. Some weird thing. It was a floodplain or something. My dad... We had a construction company just brought one had one of his guys bring a big tractor there and they flattened the whole thing out and planted grass so we had this big flat field to play sports on hmm. and our in our house being the center of everything i was like the center of the neighborhood i was like the, the house everybody came we had the basketball hoop that worked play, out. we had like a big uh, play room. <laughs> that was the first bat cave yeah so that's the first bat cave yeah everything <laughs> yeah so everything converged in our house so i was friends with everyone i was kind of like switzerland like one group hated the other group or this guy it's the guy i was friends with all of them so i'm saying van wilder yeah, yeah. so yeah so that was that's where i guess where it's you know started but yeah i've always i've always had multiple interests and i've actually talked to colby about that too because he's similar yeah and I've told him because Sandy will sometimes be be will lament the fact that he doesn't have a buddy, a best friend. And I said, well, yes, yeah, sometimes people are lucky enough to just have this best friend that they can do everything with. And I said, you know, and but Colby is sort of like me. And that's I don't think that's going to be the case. He's going to have his football friends, his baseball friends, and he's going to have his math friends or computer friends. He's going to have, you know, social friends. he's just going to hop around and it's just going to, that's how it's going to work. You know, probably. that kind of um, <clears throat> stuff that you just spoke about where you were talking about understanding people's incentives and kind of understanding the psychology of people. Mm -hmm. What age did that start kind of thinking, start coming to you at that understanding how people work? Yeah, basically Be being a good socializer. Well, I don't, I remember. So I, the first thing I remember is when we were like 10 or 11, you know, the first thing you had to figure out when convince somebody of is talk someone's parents into allowing them to sleep over. So huh. you'd be like, hey, you know, see if we get your parents to sleep out. Because it was always fun to have your friends sleep over, right? Friday or Saturday night. And and parents are always resistant to about like, well, is that, are their parents okay? And what time and this and that. And so I'd be like, all right, here's what you tell them. Tell them that we talked to my mom. It's going to be okay. Tell them this, that. Uh, tell me you'll be home for, you know, because it's Sunday. If you're, you're home in time for church or whatever, because I knew what, the, I knew what the, the hot button issues were for the particular parents. And so I would sort of train them up on what to say and how to pitch it. Uh -huh. And I, I remember that. So I, so I think, knew early on what... Do you think Col Colby's doing that kind of thing with his... I don't know. I, 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 what I do know is on his football team, they call him Coach Colby because he's always coaching up the other kids. <laughs> <laughs> Tell him what to do and how to work. That's an A gap. Do you remember you got to get over? Da, da, da. And he's, you always see him on the field hitting other guys in the pads. Like, look here, do this, do that. And he's turning around the linebackers, do this. So he's, <laughs> you know, I don't know if it's a social thing, but he's definitely wants to tell people. That's why what. Sandy calls you guys one brain. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if he, if he thinks about the people issues like I do. Right. I, I, I don't know. He's young and it's hard for me. I can't be in his head exactly, but. Um, yeah, but I do remember, remember that, and then I think it progressed. You know, older. I, I've always been aware of, you know, been kind of aware of what people wanted, and I've always been pretty attuned to like how to 
convince people or persuade people. And I, it sounds kind of bad because it sounds like I'm like a confidence man or something, but my dad was very good at that. And I think at times he may have ex- stretched <laughs> how that should be used, but he was a businessman trying to get deals done or whatever. But I inherited that, I believe. But I try not to ever misuse it, but I always feel like if I need to convince somebody or something, I'm really pretty confident that I can make it happen. So for instance, and I'll give us a quick side. Getting Phil to Pasadena. Well, that... Oh Although goodness. that did take that 15 years. That took a long years. time. That was... I won <laughs> You'll the get end. there in the end. <laughs> but, yeah. But so... <laughs> so I've been having to recruit instructors for this math academy. Right. Right? So I... I was able to get to know the uh, chairman of the uh, math department at Azusa Pacific, got invited him to breakfast, got him on the team, on my team. He invited me to come out and speak to a couple of his classes. And uh, when, when I got to speak with him in person, you know, I, I knew I had him, right? And then when he invited me to come out and to speak to his classes, and I spoke to two of his classes, just gave like 10 minutes, and it was like shooting fish in a barrel. I knew I had him. Right. To get me out in front of these kids, and I'm gonna have them. And I came away after these two classes with like 25 kids with names on there on, on these pieces of paper. And then I was like, you know, I don't have an in in some of these other schools, and I didn't have time to create an in. So what I did at Pasadena City College is I sent an email to the te- to the professors to a couple of the differential equations courses, which are the highest courses at a, at a city college. And I told them briefly what the course was, what the pro- program was, and that we're trying to recruit instructors and et cetera, et cetera. I didn't hear any back from either of them. So I was like, you know what? Screw that. So I went down to their class. And <laughs> right after class, the class ended, I kind of walked in and, and I dressed up so I didn't look like a crazy guy off the street. And I said, or at least I'd look like a well-dressed crazy yeah. guy off the street. Yeah. <laughs> and so I walked in. Although the one guy, I was dressed up and I had the, you know, I had kind of like the, you know, business clothes went on and I had the, I had a clipboard. So the first professor was a little like, oh, what's going on? Like, so I, was I, like someone for the, I was like someone for administration, you know? Oh, like, right, okay. I said, like, no, no. I said, uh, excuse me, professor. I sent you an email a few days ago about the, uh, the math academy and I was hoping I could speak with you. He's like, oh, oh yeah, yeah. And then he felt really guilty that he didn't reply. And I said, oh, no. And I said, like, oh, no, don't worry about it. I said, I was just wanted to ask if, if there's any way if you could help me help me get the word out because we're, we're desperate to recruit instructors and we, you know, we need a lot of them. And I was hoping we might find some here on campus. And he says, he goes, he goes, oh, well, you know what? Why don't you just come to our next class and then you can have 10 minutes and you just come, you know, at 10 a.m., half hour in, and I'll just give you. So I came in and uh, then, you know, that next class and I stood up and I kind of started giving the pitch. And of the 30 kids, I got 22 of them. <laughs> I, first, I, before, I, before I had them write their names, I said, I said, first of all, let me just ask you a quick question. Who here thinks they might be interested in doing this. And it was like, you know, three quarters of names, hands go up. And I'm like, all right. And so (laughs) I have another follow-up. I have a, with the other, the other differential equations classes on uh, Tuesday. So I'm going to go and talk to that class as well. But anyway, I knew if you can get me in front of the people, I can do it. I can, it'll be shooting fish in a barrel. But the email blast that went out at Occidental College, Caltech, it's like one or two kids. You know, yeah. it just, it's just not the same. But anyway, and there's always going to be a higher conversion rate in person, but I've always had confidence in my ability to <laughs> persuade if I need to. Nice. Anyway, sorry, long answer to that. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, see, Phil, this is why I said you, you were asking me, you know, topics. What are the topics going to be in the right. show? I was like, it doesn't matter. We don't need topics. It doesn't matter. We don't need topics. We just riff. <laughs> yeah. We, we just, just let it roll. <laughs> <laughs> let it roll. Is that, is that, what would be the idiom that you guys say in, in England, in Britain? About what? Just let it roll. Would you ever, you ever say, like, just keep calm and carry on? <laughs> I've seen that printed. I'm trying to think. I can't. I, I can't equate it to anything it's in not, my head right now. The idiom's now. not I'll, tip I'll, of the tongue. I'll, yeah, it's not off the tip of my tongue right okay. now. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll all right, we'll let you slide this time, but you got to yeah. come prepared. Just, just you're representing all. Of we're just we're just going to riff. Just going to riff. Okay, but we do have all these topics that you've well, like carefully uh, yeah. aligned carefully and picked, sent out. And, by the way, what's and, that? I yes. gave a long list. Although I read, the, I read through most of them in like maybe an hour, hour and a half this I morning. Mean, so it wasn't that long. Can right? I, no, no, can they're, I they're like bring up one of the topics that you sent that I would really like to talk Please. about? Yeah, do don't okay. make it the one about Seattle though, because I couldn't read that because there was no link. So oh, or, I, I'm, just, was, gonna, I'm anyway, just gonna say the a, topic and then you can I'm, like introduce it because you okay, have sure. a deeper understanding. But it's it's well, first of all, it's the it's the Ray Kurzweil in 2013 nanobots in our brains. Yeah, nanobots in our brains. Right. Yeah. I like that one. Go on. Yeah, yeah nanobots yeah, yeah. in our so, brains. Well, you know, Kurzweil is always making these these no. uh, extravagant <laughs> predictions. You know, um, so I mean, funny, funny thing. One thing I'll say about these links, I, I did quite mean it to be this way, but a lot of them are very futurism oriented. Yeah, they are. Yeah, right. um, I thought I learned a lot about you. Yeah. Yeah, I, I didn't realize there were quite so many, but I was, I didn't want to like, hey, there's a new JavaScript library out, you know. It's like there's some that were just, there's some that be like, we, they just know where to go with it, you know. And I, I'm trying to figure out ones that we could go with, and some of the ones that, f that I felt like Justin and I were able to talk about and have the most fun with were these sort of crazy predictions, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. Justin. Well, this is a good one. So basically, nanobots in our brains will make us godlike. Right. Right. Well, let me ask you a question. Did you actually read it? I did. Really? I that was a long time right. too. It was honestly very interesting. Well, sorry. So he, well, one thing he said is that having these nanobots will actually make us more human. I mean, sort of like the, the traditional view on sort of cyborgism. Bo yeah, like emerging, the Borg. Yeah, that we become more robotic. Pa part of the hive or something. Yeah. That we become less emotional, less empathetic, uh, less nuanced. We're just, we become more like Spock. <laughs> you know we're his <laughs> yeah we're whereas his his position is that we become Ship more human, out of danger we become more empathetic we become more godlike in terms of like he was saying he was using god as like the sense of like this loving love and understanding of other people and having deeper emotions and I don't know, deeper connections to things which was kind of interesting never, well, well what i got from it was that you were that when you had these nanobots in your brain and you had this kind of right. connection to the cloud Basically, you could amplify the parts of yourself that were yourself. So if you were into surfing, well, you could really get into surfing because you could understand everything about surfing because mm -hmm. all the data are on the cloud out there. That's the impression that well, I took. Well, it's not just like, you know, whereas like a calculator amplifies our ability to deal with numbers and, you know, something that would amplify our personalities or emotion. Well, see, I, okay. So I had a couple takes on this. Um, I think the most philosophical take I had on it was I kind of disagreed with the the concept that um, if we all like, okay, this is wild science fiction, but let's say we all plugged our brains into the cloud. Mm -hmm. um, I think what that would do, at least kind of what we see the internet happening now, like when the internet first came out, this, 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 the kind of narrative that was put out there was it would create more diversity, right? Because now it's egalitarian, everybody can put up a website. 
But what we have seen is the rise of like super monopolies like Amazon. It becomes a consolidation of power because it's so much easier to do these economies of scale. It's like one provider. Um, the Walmart yeah. effect of like all the little yeah. mom and pop stores. It, get it's, it's basically kind of like how these sort of small stores are being replaced by national chains. And the internet is a level above that where now it's like Amazon's replacing all the chains. It's like you have just their superstore in the cloud. Um, and now whether that's right or wrong, it, it does eliminate some diversity. So if, if the three of us and sitting in this room all were plugged into the cloud and our thoughts were even 60% generated by the cloud, in theory, we're all getting the same thoughts. And so I think that there's imperfect, yes, human brains are imperfect. The dream to make them perfect in some ways is homogenizing them into having the same kinds of thoughts. Mm -hmm. Now, maybe those thoughts you might argue are better and therefore we wanna get rid of the diversity that's imperfect, but there is some truth to the sort of evolutionary theory that things evolve through imperfect trials or trial and errors. And so one of the dangers is that we think of evolution as having this point that we're evolving towards and that single point represents some sort of summit and whereas I think like the way the world really is kind of in diversity is it's wide open. I mean, we could go to any number of endpoints. And so I'm just, because we might be finding a local minimum, I'm a little skeptical that we want to kill off all the, the sort of biological diversity by sort of supplanting it with sort of cloud logic. That said, I'm not opposed to it. I mean, I think enhancing human thought through robotics. Hook me up. Well, <laughs> I think it's kind of interesting too. Like you brought up surfing, like, how would that work in, in that there's one theory that says, well, you would just be essentially doing a Google search. Okay, right now, if I need to know something, I can get on my computer, I can hit a search button, I can search for it, find the information and read it. So there's a way to get that data in my brain. Okay, so these nanobots are really just a more efficient way. It just circumvents the typing in and But isn't it like, what was that movie where they, where they downloaded their conscious experiences to LaserDisc? And then they replayed them. What was that movie? Did um, you guys see that? It was like an 80s movie. Yeah, you're talking about with uh, Chris Walken? Yeah, it's yeah. Like Brainstorm or... Something like that. Something, but yeah. I mean, it, wouldn't, wouldn't it be like that where we can like actually... It's, it well, there's the two reality. theories. Is one, yeah. I'm going to take my consciousness, yeah. whatever that is, and put it into technology as a surrogate body. Or this way, which is, no, I'm going to keep my body the way it is. It's I'm like going to put the technology in my head. Augmenting. Like, where are you going to move it to? Augmenting it, which I think is probably closer. Augmenting yeah. biology. Yeah, so you know one thing that's interesting about that, because I, I we may have talked about this the show, but if you talk about uploading your conscious to the brain, let's say that we took a extremely high resolution uh, imaging of your brain, okay? A thousand times yeah. more high resolution than our best MRI, right? And we just we can replicate it in a as a computer program, right? We could do all kinds of computer things with that brain, but but you, if you're still alive, you don't feel any of that. Right, yeah. you're still here. That's not it's you. Completely abstract. Right. So copy. if then you were killed off, that's not really you. You did. You didn't continue living. Just some replica of you continued living. So even if you can upload your, but it felt like it was you. Well, but I mean, to, to other people. One. So for instance, if I was interfacing the brain, I'm like, holy shit, there's Phil. You know, I'm talking to Phil, but that's not really you because you can't. It is you. It is you. But you. But it's just it, that there's two yous. Like but yeah, there's, there's just two yous. So, there's two yous. Right. What I'm yeah. saying is. <laughs> you don't get to live forever. I mean, like, if someone takes a copy of your brain and then you get shot, like, you're dead. Like, you don't get to enjoy well, you, that. No, you, you, you are You do alive. get to live forever. You do. You, you feel like you, you live forever. One of you does. But not you. No, it is you. They're, they're both you. If, well, if like, what you're saying is true, that it, it is an exact copy of what you call you, mm -hmm. so you are copying your identity, right. then you are 
you're the you would answer that question who is jason roberts if posed to both entities would mm -hmm. answer they were them i am jason roberts. i am jason roberts so therefore you exist twice if you yeah. are your history your it memories would it would just feel like you teleported and into, you, into the computer yeah well, we talk about that like teleportation is you know we make a copy and then we actually have to murder you right so if the if the teleportation device uh, malfunctioned and didn't murder you after it made a re replica of you and shot you across the universe to some other location I'm just saying, so like if we took a copy of you at that moment, at that instant in time, you're a replica, but then the brain goes on to live some, in some virtual universe and is experiencing new things and you're experiencing new yeah. things, then you diverge. You're not copy. Right. You're not the yeah, same person. Yeah, you wouldn't. Right. So that already is happening right now. Like because every, every six months, all of our cells change, right? From the food we eat. Yeah, so but there's uh, a continuity there. There's right. a continuity. So it's like if, if there was a replica made of my brain and it, and it lived in some virtual universe, I still personally would not want to be killed which is well now we're going to take you off and we're going to shoot you i like i would still just as i would be just as strongly against that happening <laughs> <laughs> i vehemently opposed being put to death whether or not there was a there's, there's got to be a precedent here with sort of like uh abortion right because how much time like when is someone when is a baby alive right at conception so right after the teleportation happens and there's you and your replicant. That moment, everyone would agree, could kill the replicant. There is There are two copies of the identical you. But let's say a week goes by, and both you and the replicant have lived a week, and both have formed now individual memories, new experiences, so there has been this slight deviation. Now is it legal? Is it is it is it more like the first scenario where it's a second after transportation is more like cleaning up biological waste? But a week later, it's more like, well, this kind of murder because this this entity that was not sort of taken care of after teleportation sort of hung around for a week and fell in love with some girl and <laughs> you know it's at a, and, she and they're like now it's sort of murder right now well, of the they, course he, of a year's gone by and this replicant somehow escaped the teleportation well, so it's just, I mean, there's a ranking between zero and one like your your individuality yeah, marker right. so your individuality they, is zero instantaneously at zero but you're or your differentiation, right, right. you are you are twenty percent or point five percent differentiated. Maybe that, that could point. be a legal press. There has to be a legal. They deal with that a, on the show Continuum quite a lot. You should check that out. Continuum. It's a Canadian you know, science I fiction show. The, I watched the first episode of it, and I and I didn't dislike it. I liked it okay, but I got I never picked it up. I've, I've been it takes a bit. It. it takes a few. Episodes I'm thinking to about it. Into, well, it's yeah. like well, a lot of shows. It takes a little bit. Of, so how yeah. long does it last? How long do you have to wait before an individual? Um, identity emerges after teleportation i don't know like I mean, a couple weeks all i'm well my whole point of this <laughs> my whole point of bringing this up is that would you kill them i don't give a crap <laughs> i don't give a crap about you talk about immortality we upload our self-consciousness and that's immortality it's not immortality for me it's immortality for something else that's very I see. very you feel like i'm not gonna live forever just because some copy of me is in silica somewhere that i'm not alive i'm, I'm dead. so you don't you don't kind of believe in be like being a creator and writing books so that you can live forever through your books well, then also you just want to live forever like as I, you've said many times you want to you want to be frozen you want to be frozen and real i don't want to be frozen i'm just saying that's like your that's the hail mary pass at this point right i mean look if you're down by six points and there's 10 seconds left in the game and you're on the 20 you're still gonna throw a hail mary right you're not gonna you're not gonna you know down it and just say i guess we lost right you're still you're just you're there to win so at what point in your life let's say things progress but it, it, there is no clear way to to live be immortal right so at what age do you say you know what i'm gonna throw that hail mary i'm gonna chop my head off freeze it 
<laughs> I'm not chopping my head off. I know, oh, I'm not chopping my head full off. Full body, I'm full body. We'll have a, but I, what, what point are you Because you, you have to freeze it after fresh. After it does. Right? Fresh no, body. No, no, it's, it's, it's after. It, you, no, you, I thought you don't want your organs to no, fail. No, no, no. Right? What wanna, they do, the way, the way it works. They have a flash freeze. So Mitchell and I, so Mitchell's our, a friend of Phil and I. So Mitchell and I, we were in high school. We, um, wherever there was an article of one of these transhumanist magazines or something that he happened to have or one of his brothers had. Transhumanist. I mean, it was like, it was, it was talking about things like the singularity and stuff before okay. it had a name, you know, that okay. kind of stuff, right? Gotcha. Right. And we were in high school, we're like, dude, and it was, talk- oh, and it did, it did like a, a feature of, on the whole cryonic stuff. And we're like, yeah, we're totally doing that. Right. And ever since then, I, I, I was, I was kind of convinced. I'm like, you know what, you know, if they don't, if they don't improve medicine, uh, to the point where we can extend our lives considerably, then I've, why not? Right. Why not? do it where so the way it works is you create a you take out an insurance policy for a hundred thousand dollars and you make uh this company the uh, beneficiary okay when it has to work this way if you get you get hit by a car and you're just splattered or whatever this, this ain't gonna happen but let's say that you're like a lot of people there you're 85 years old your heart is failing whatever you're in the hospital you know your kids or grandkids are coming to say goodbye which happens probably more often than not then that's when you inform this company, say he's, you know, Jason may have a few days left to work, uh, live or even a day or two. So they send people in every city they have right. trained up like EMT equivalents. They show up, people are there. There's always one person there. They're, they're like on call. As soon as you die, as soon as the doctors, you know, pronounce, you know, a time of death, they're done. They take over. They, they drain your blood. They put like the, the equivalent of like an antifreeze kind of solution in it to, to limit the amount. So when you do get frozen, it limits the amount of crystals formed right, in your right, blood and right. your tissues, which will destroy your tissues and what can destroy your brain tissue. Limits it down. They slowly take your um, your uh, body temperature down to, you know, zero or whatever. They freeze you, take it off, and they put you in a frozen facility, and there you go. Now, if things don't work out, you're dead anyway, right? You're dead. Sure. But question. if it works out, as far as you're concerned, you close your eyes, you're dead, and then it's like, and we're up, Wait and you're second. out, right? I and have, it's 150 years later. With that in mind, I have a question for you. Okay. Going back to what you just said about copying your consciousness into a machine, mm-hmm. you said you, that you wouldn't feel like you're alive. Well, how about if you copied your, if you took a scan of your consciousness at the moment you died, mm. and then put it in a machine, so you died here, no, and then you woke still, up in the machine. Because it's still now, not you. No, you still can't feel it. Same feel. But you, you, you are your, you, no, you are not just the uh, the thought patterns. You are the actual physical material. You okay, are well, they the put brain it in a surrogate body. So take your brain out and stick it into no, a No, no, your consciousness in a surrogate body that was just how are you, like How you. are you taking your consciousness out? A copy, because if I took a copy of your brain, like I said, if I took a copy of your brain and put it in someone's body, you certainly can't feel it, right? They, they, they had, if, okay. If, no, because you you just died. You just died. So basically, you just died. So you stop feeling anyway. You no, know, that's a copy of you enjoying. You're not. And you're then not, you. No, it's not the same thing because you can't feel it. You All can't. Right. So it still has to be you. It has to be your tissue. And yeah, if you've yeah. watched those horror movies, right, where like spirits possess bodies that weren't their own, they're not happy people. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Did, did your ghost leaves your body. And <laughs> Good but, point. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. true. Well, so I I figure. That's a Hail Mary. Maybe we'll get lucky and science improves dramatically over the next, you know, 40 years, 30, 40 years, as Kurzweil and others have um, anticipated, in which case maybe we don't have to do it. I mean, Kurzweil used to say the the person who lives forever or, or can has the 
physical potentiality to live indefinitely is already has already been born and you know based on extrapolations for various scientific advances but he also says that um as long as you can you're alive and not and health relatively healthy at this particular year then then what will happen is they we will have science will advance enough that we can extend life ever so slightly and that improves year after year and so it just keeps like receding off into the distance right Right. So all, and so that's what he, one of the things that Kurzweil is doing, I remember there was a 60 Minutes episode on this maybe like a decade ago, where he's he's trying to keep himself healthy enough and alive long enough for that point to happen. And now it's like, you know, 2035 or what the hell it is, but something like that. Um, one other thing that that article made me think of is that if everyone had nanobots in their brains and we're all connected to the cloud and we had this unlimited knowledge, the truly the first supervillain would be born, like we've, like we see in Superman or something like that. Because they'd be smart enough, right? You could be a supervillain. If what? Just because you've lived so long? No, you could be a supervillain because you were connected to the cloud. Like you could be, if you were evil, well, if you were bad, you could be badder. Well, that, if you were good, you could be gooder. Well, that brings up another topic. We're talking about how genetic engineering is inevitable and people aren't prepared for it, right? And they're talking about using the CRISPR technology to not only edit your genes, but edit your germline, right? And uh, and the other guy who wrote, I think it was MIT Technology Review or Scientific American or whatever, but the guy was calling for a moratorium on this, even though it's, CRISPR technique is being used in hundreds, if not potentially thousands of labs around the world. Yeah. But because it, they said, well, if some evil uh, scientists or unethical scientists are looking to create a race of superhumans, you know, like certain countries. And I'm like, is that really evil? Why is it evil to make us smarter, better, you know, stronger, faster? Not you. Know, why? Well, well, well why I think is that the, evil? The, 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 the speculation is that he's not just creating them sort of like for their own for their own pleasure like he's creating them to control them as an army so uh, if he, a nation a nation state is going to create a, a, a an army of of, of i think that Captain super sol the whole super but the whole soldier point theory, that you're really clever would stop you you'd start you know you'd question authority so you'd be well, very that, difficult that's to control. why I, I okay a number of these articles would start a certain way and then spin into this dark dystopian future and i i was the one thing i would say is if we're controlling brains if I if okay if I was an evil leader and I wanted an army, I would I would breed like massive gorilla like yeah, huge animals yeah. like eight <laughs> like massive breed them as big as strong as they can then you could take over their brains more easily and there's less ethical issues and think about how terrifying it would be if you dropped like these guys would parachute I'm talking really smart massive gorillas and they would drop <laughs> they out just of planes Dawn of the Planet of the Apes I know like, you know it's Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. These things would fall into a city and they would take it over in no time. They're fast, <laughs> strong, and they're smart enough. And, and they're yeah, trainable. Forget the SEAL Team Boom, 6. This right. Is like the, oh, they would rip a SEAL Team 6 guy in half. Gorilla commandos. Yeah, gorilla commandos. And you don't have to train them. They're already naturally <laughs> strong. And I, I'm like, that's what I would do. I wouldn't try to get around ethical issues of taking human beings and try to mind control like them. Like those um, experiments they do on cockroaches where they kind of put a little thing they on the make, back and they can make it go in a different direction and kind of control it. Have you seen that? remote control cockroaches have you seen that no i have not seen yeah, that. yeah it's like you, they kind of plug in the uh so wait they're controlling the cockroaches yeah because they're putting electrodes into their little into their little brain gotcha and so they're kind of forcing the cockroach to move forward and, and they, they're able to do that yeah and nobody's clamoring ethical issues about i'm that pretty one. sure they no, are I, yeah, they probably they are right and that's actually the, a good point is that a lot of people worry about human manipulation and i think that's true we have to watch about that but I think people are right to worry about animal manipulation too, because the truth is, is that we're meddling on a lot of different levels. Mm -hmm. We really are. And um, playing with the Lego kit. We really are. And I, I mean, 
it's interesting as we get more and more powerful and we start probing deeper and deeper into the machine, the mistakes we make are less and less localized and they become more global in nature. You know, once the cat's out of the bag, you talk about like germ warfare and whatnot, biological mm -hmm. warfare. It feels like, yeah, there's an inevitability to it all. I agree, but maybe that's a pessimistic outlook. Maybe it's less cynical to say we can, as a human society, decide for ourselves as a culture what we're going to, we, how we want to envision our future, what kind of technology we want. There is, there is sort of people who are like, you know what, technology, it, whatever, it's science should be open. We should explore whatever we want to explore. And I like that philosophically because I like the sentiment of that. I like, oh, you know, let's just investigate everything. I like that. But we, but practically speaking, we live in a world where a lot of people have agendas and sometimes they can get an edge. Like this article is talking about the neuroscientists. Some of them were naive about the, the application, the militarization of their research. They just thought, well, nobody's going to militarize it. Um, I think that, that that can be dangerous because the people who don't think things can be militarized are also the same people thinking we should be pure science. We, we just investigate life. We don't really, you know, we should be allowed full for bull for full bore ahead. Mm. Um, that's my rant. <laughs> oh, nice. So the, 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 the related thing was, um, there's a couple of them that were kind of related. That's why, I, that's why I put them in there was about the idea of, um, the guy who created second life was talking about how you can create the super high resolution version of second life essentially, mm. which, and I want to say about like 2030 or something that we could have a computer, the size of a laptop would essentially be able to, I don't know. He said the resolution. He could. It could simulate the resolution of the entire planet, if not galaxy or some crazy thing. Wow. And but then there was another article that was talking about like why why it was called. Here's the title: Why we can't find any alien neighbors in virtual reality might be to blame. So and I think and there was a third article where Steve about with an interview with Stephen Hawking where he was essentially wondering if that might be the case. That reason that we're not seeing all these spacefaring alien races that they got advanced enough in their computing technology that rather than wanting to expend a lot of resources and efforts to go to other planets or star systems, they're just like, you know what? Our virtual reality is so awesome that anything that we want or we want to experience or feel we can make happen. We could, instead of fighting against the nasty laws of physics, mm -hmm. we can create our own physics, our own experiences. And, you know, as we know, as you know, is that your experiences are essentially all in your brain, right? Anything that happens, you can, you can, replicate right so if that's indeed the case and if we had high enough resolution um virtual realities and we're able to say you know nanobots or whatever can go into our brains and say you know we're going to hook your brain in directly so all um senses and everything can be sort of pulled into and out and from this virtual reality you don't actually have to feel anything kind of like ma you know matrix i guess i just have to take exception with one thing there which is Something the size of a laptop could have the resolution of the size of the universe. Oh, is it the universe? Is it, is it the but like they have the resolution of the size of the Earth. Mm -hmm. But wouldn't it have to have enough bits to have the same resolution? So wouldn't it have to be the same size as the Earth to have the same number of bits? Would it simulate it simulate down to the resolution of an atom? I think is what they said. I think based right, on but, calculations of continued Moore's law growth and you know and, and computing power. I think is what he said. I mean, there's a link to the article. I would okay. look it up. But well, we'll put links in the show notes. But mm -hmm. Well, okay. So my thought on that, which mm -hmm. which kind of ran to the funny part of it, okay. enough, is that let, let, you know, if I personally don't know if I would want to be in a virtual reality because, but my first comment is that part of the problem I'm going to again hit the internet is that it loses diversity. 
So part mm -hmm. of the problem with a virtual reality world is that it's predetermined by whoever built the system. So they say, they're sure there's not bounded by the laws of physics or whatever, but it's bounded by what whoever built the system. So the system was constructed. It has a certain um, set of rules and boundaries. And, right. then, and, that was, and you're agreeing to live in that set versus another. And I think that the universe may be a more pleasant place to live than in a virtual world, which may be more curtailed. That, that's one element. But if we hypothesize, let's say, a, a virtual reality world where a lot of people do want to live, well, the one truth of that is that not everybody can go in there. Somebody needs to stay outside to keep the power on, <laughs> keep the mm -hmm. machines running to fix things. Like there's a certain set of population, you may call them maybe the workers, but anything that's going to power, uh, you're talking about a massive well, the administration. They may call it the administration. The tech ops. The, the tech ops, right. But they've got to live in the human world because they have to live in the world that the machines run on. Because we may live in a virtual world, but the machines that support the virtual world run in this world. Unless, so, unless we get so good at developing artificial intelligence by then that we can create artificial intelligence that's good enough to run to these just machines. be the bots. Just outside you just, the world. you just run this, the machines that keep. I don't know. But that's true. But I often think like you know maybe there would be have to be someone with the incentive to keep the lights on out. Anyway, way, that's what my mind went to is, and I also feel like there is a there is a modern. Um, thought that virtual reality is a better place. I mean, you hear these, when people talk about virtual reality worlds, people go to that world. And I know that the world, the existing world today is, is a harsh place for a lot of people and they don't feel like they belong. They don't feel like they fit in. And so going into a virtual world allows them to be who they, who they really want to be. And a lot of people talk about that. I, I think that's fantastic. I think having a virtual reality world that lets them express themselves uh, and be who they want to be. I feel like it would be better if we changed our current social structures in the real world that allowed people to feel more integrated and have real real relationships with other people. Not that VR relationships aren't real. They're real actually in some important ways because they get around a lot of our biases. You know, like people who hate each other based on race or prejudice. When you see another avatar, I think that that breaks down that barrier so people can actually, it fixes problems You're not really real thinking world. about that, that stuff. Yeah, you're not thinking about yeah. it because you see the avatar and it's a different world. And so it takes us out of our biases. It takes us out of the environment that can be prejudicial. Um, I, VR to me is a mixed reality because I feel like you you have to know what you want, you know? And I, I feel like human connection is still dodgy at this point. But, you know, well, if, you if you hypothesize a great VR world... But for, say, for example, Stephen Hawking, wouldn't he generally have a better time in a virtual reality? Right, if you were disabled or someone who was trapped in any... Yeah, I would think, unless, well, you know... And, and like you think of Minecraft, right? Minecraft is very, very primitive version of a virtual world that you can manipulate. There are mods. It's not like you join one Minecraft and like, this is the way the Minecraft is. You know, you can change... There's a lot of things that you can change about it, either which is building stuff yourself or installing mods. You know, there could be this infinite set of, of possibilities in, in, in a simulated world, simulated universe, and people could just say, you know what, I'm tired of this, or I'm going to adjust the law, I'm going to change the laws of physics, or I'm going to do this, or, or whatever. I mean, I, I don't know if it's like it has to be static, it could be ever adjusting. I mean, and just because you're in the universe doesn't mean you can't change it from within that you have to kind of pull out. Mm -hmm. kind of, you know, it's like the, it kind of harkens to a little bit to the AI question. Mm -hmm. Like, People say, well, guys who are working in AI, they're trying to create human brains, mach machines that are human brains. But 
there's really kind of no need to do that because we already have the technology to make more human brains through having more children. We can make enough human brains. So sometimes the the more interesting AI question isn't duplicate. I mean, there's a pure science aspect of like duplicating human brain, but more of it's like, like, well, find out what the human brain's not really good at and augment the brain by making it better. And I think the VR world is the same thing. There's a sort of sense of let's build this great VR world that's basically identical to the real world. And then we can go in there when it's like, well, we're... We're in the real world right now. Mm. Why try to build a city? Or are we? According to the ancestor well, simulation and by what's it? Are we in the, the guy at Oxford is speculating <laughs> that there's a higher probability that we're in a simulation than we're in reality. Which which kind of is is mind numbing. Do you um, think that we're yeah. kind of on the edge of the VR revolution? I mean, I know that. What the, does that mean? Well, the the, the theory is is that um, Samsung are made, like they. They think that Oculus Rift. The problem with o the Oculus is that you need to have spent so much money on a machine to actually make it work, which is the reason why it won't go mainstream, which is why Samsung and others are working so hard to just turn mobile phones into virtual reality headsets, mm. because that can really go mainstream. Yeah, I think this is, these are all just like near-term concerns. I think in a matter of you know handful of years, a lot of stuff will just shake out. I mean, in the end, it, right, it, it'll get cheaper and cheaper, and it'll go there. The question is, can we go there sooner, or do we have to go through this long, cumbersome period of time where things are very expensive and clumsy and whatever, just like computers, right? The initial computers were slow and big and expensive. It's funny how with virtual reality, we've had it since, I don't know, like the 90s. We've had some form of it, even mm -hmm. since sure. the 80s. But it's taking so long for it to become a, a fully realized technology. Well, I think people keep moving the bar. It's like they see it and we go, oh, we created this 3D environment. And you're like, oh, that's cool, but it'd be better if, you know, it'd be better if, right, higher resolution, more... You know, like e e 3D shooters. I mean, even like seven, eight years ago, I mean, they, you know, a lot of these, 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 these water, it seemed like the way water would look and reflections and stuff. I mean, that was pretty amazing, right? Yeah, already. But yeah. now it's like, but it'd be better if, you know, I keep, keep changing. So one thing I want to jump, because I, I got to go shortly. So I just want to do two quick things. Sure. One is, um, is the one about the, uh, the, the anti-aging revolution the guy oh, was talking about beyond resistance. I liked it. That was a good and one. they're talking about these, these these precursors, which sort of what repair or uh, mm -hmm. damaged mitochondria, or, or you know the you know that's right mitochondrial the, problems. Yeah, that's why we age. So our but our, our buddy Mitchell, who we affectionately called Chotty, Chotty, Chotty has Shout ordered out. some of this stuff. He's has my he friend it? from high school. We were talking about the uh, the chronic stuff. So he actually has ordered some of the stuff and started is, is started to take yeah. it. He and his wife and. Uh, he was telling me about, we were over at his house for barbecue a few weeks back and he was telling me about it. So I said, all right, well, I'm going to check in with you in like two months and see. I, was like, I don't want to waste money on something, but if you actually feel All right, so tell me, what, what is it? So you... Well, it's, it's essentially a pill, but it, 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 it's they had they had some um, success with mice that it basically they injected, uh, you know, some of this stuff or some similar stuff into the muscles of these mice and it returned their their old muscles into, you know, into effectively well, like what is young stuff? muscles. Um. I mean, I, I can't. It's just, I don't. I can't even pronounce it. But like, how how can you order it? I mean, it's it's so. There's, there's two places online: Chromadex and Elysium Health, or something. Yeah. See, Mitchell had already sent me a link to this. I, I, I a few. Well, the the history behind it is uh, a, a few years ago. I'm going to use the layman's term, like red wine. I right. think it's resveratrol. Resveratrol yeah. was the was isolated as something that would aid in longevity. Right. And so, you know, red wine had this good connotation, but you, but you do have to have a considerable amount of it. Reservatrol. Reservatrol, right. Now, what they've also found is that there's something that is, uh, and again, like, like all these biological things, they all inter interact. So there are precursors to 
um, things that you can eat the precursor and maybe your body will make it. And there's also enabling things. So what I think Jason's talking to this article is referring to a supplement that makes other things more powerful. And so if you take Vesveratrol or this other subject, subject is like it. Uh, so I get blueberries and some other stuff. It's actually Yeah, better. it's basically blueberries. It's actually like more, uh, more potent. Terastilbene. Mm-hmm. And if you take that with, with this other thing, then it, apparently they work in concert with it with, together. To, I think ultimately we'll come up with something that's kind of like the equivalent of like the HIV drug cocktail, which is yeah. like a whole bunch of different drugs that do different things that kind of have like the, the, you know, the sum is greater than the, uh, the whole is greater than a part, some of the parts, mm-hmm. something where they affect all kinds of things, mitochondria or... And so did he say he was already dollars. feeling any different? Well, he'd only been taking like a week or two, so we'll see. Oh, so okay. Mitchell, the thing we know about Mitchell is he's an incredibly fit guy. So yeah. he's our age, but I mean, he still is like, he's like 5% body fat, 16. He's just, you know. So uh, he's already extremely healthy in terms of how he eats and how much he trains and stuff. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. So he's not someone who just goes to the office and then comes and says, oh, I yeah. feel better. He's actually going and does the Brazilian jiu-jitsu. He's like really good at notice. So when he's actually rolling around the mat competing with 25-year-olds, in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, he's going to be able to tell after a couple months, like, is this working or not? You know, yeah. does he have more energy? Is he more stamina? Is he more, huh. is he stronger? So we'll see. So I, I have to go really quickly, but I want to talk about one last thing before we go. We sure. need to talk about the end, the death of Spoke. Oh, the, the rise death? and fall the rise of Spoke. Of, well, it's like I said, I mean, fail fast. That's what I was, that's what I was into. Now, the irony, the real irony is that this is the first product that I've properly validated and basically built the whole landing page and spoken to customers and all that stuff before I built any tech to, yeah. to just kind of prove that there was a need for it and people wanted it. And as it turns out, people do want it. But then I said to you last week, I kind of hinted at it that I, my test was showing that the tech wasn't quite ready. Well, I did more tests and the tech's just not ready. For example, it, it translates about 20% of you. <laughs> right. If I run a texting episode, it like you just seem like garbled garbage right. coming out of the well, out of the transcription true. service. Just, yeah, no, I, I mean, just say that's and, actually and as accurate. accurate but as it gets, I was thinking, right? okay, maybe that's just Jason. You know, maybe he's just really <laughs> unique and it just can't pick up Jason. But then I ran a lot more tests and found out good ways of sending the audio, cleaning up the audio, and it's just it just it's just not good. So even though on the on the transcription website, IBM Watson was the tool that I was using, they say that they've kind of created algorithms that mean that they can get it 90% accurate. It, I couldn't get I couldn't achieve those results. So I'm just I don't want to build a business where the technology it's just hit and miss. It's not ready. It's just too early. Rest too early. Maybe in another seven to ten years. Right, but then other people, other people are going to do it. So. Mm. I'm just going to basically send a message out to the list saying, thanks a lot for subscribing. I'm going to be shutting down this project. The technology's not there yet. Okay. Yeah. So you have a new idea? Uh, Can you give us the elevator pitch, the two-minute elevator pitch? Well, two-minute? Uh, no, I, I'm, st- I'm still playing around. I'll, I'll talk to you privately. You have a variety of ideas? Yeah, yeah. I'll talk to you privately, and um, we'll see. I'm not sure which one to pursue. I've got like 10. You know, I've got... 10 ideas. I'm thinking, a lot, I'm thinking all the time about them, yeah. I like the sound of that. I like yeah. lots of ideas. Ten. All yeah. right. Yeah, are you going to launch more than one at a time? Or are you just gonna no. whatever your top priority no, is? No, I'm just I'm just gonna fail fast. I'm just gonna each each idea, iterate, think about it. Don't fail too fast. Cereal <laughs> it'll be a cereal fla- uh, face planter. Well, it's not a face planter. <laughs> no, it's I mean. not a face planter, but like But I mean even, even to the point where I feel like they also need to pass certain tests just to get to the point where I put the effort to make a landing page. So a lot of that that's happening a lot right now. I'm thinking, oh, that's a really good idea. And then the more I think about it, the more people I speak to, I'm like, 
you know what? There's like really a lot of bad reasons. I'm not even going to bother trying to validate this. Yeah. So mm-hmm. a, lo- a lot well, of that's happening. Well, ultimately, you have to have a feeling, a good feeling about to start, right? If you don't really believe it. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, th- that has to be, I think, essential. I, so I think that's a really good way to think about um, how you start companies is starts more on the skeptical side because a lot of entrepreneurs start with the unassailable belief that they're going to succeed. And I think sometimes that blinds them to doing market research and really validating the ideas is they just, they take it for granted. Of course, this idea is solid. Right. So kind of be err on the side of being slightly skeptical of your ideas and validate enough that you prove it out. And, um, well, one yeah. thing I will say is I've been briefly in touch with Hitton Shah, you know, Hitton, who we yeah, had on the mm-hmm. show, or, well, who we met in MicroConf, and just asking his advice a little bit. And he's kind of got me going down the avenue of the lean startup and just the the theory of uh, posing a kind of uh, a problem-solution hypothesis. Okay. So basically, you know, I, I believe that these type of people have this type of problem. Right. Okay, sure. now go and prove that's true. That's right. Well, so yeah. what, what Phil's saying, yeah, being a skeptic, skeptic is that's how, in theory, science yeah. is supposed to be done, yeah. right? You're supposed to, it has to be falsifiable, and you need to come in at skeptical, but, uh, and actually look at real data, run a real experiment. Yeah. Oh, and just so people know, so uh, when Phil concluded his MBA, he was an analyst and would vet deals for uh, a VC firm in Chicago. So you looked at what, like 30 different deals? Worked was on an Earth. angel Angel. Yeah, angel group. But you also yeah. worked at VC group for a while. Yeah, too, right? and then I, I did some projects okay. as an entrepreneur in residence. Okay. So when he I, speaks, he's not just some random guy talking. He, well, I am kind of a random guy. He's a random guy talking. <laughs> That's true as well. But he, uh, he, he vetted a lot of deals and talked to a lot of entrepreneurs and spent a lot of time with the angels themselves as they hashed over the idea, ideas and deciding which ones they'd find and which ones. And we should would. definitely do an episode where we just talk about VC stuff, or not VC stuff, just startup world, because I think yeah. that would be kind of fun. And maybe it would be, be fun to talk. It would be fun to. Uh, could you talk about some of the deals that you you'd considered, or well, we probably have run out of time in the general. Time. No, I don't mean now. But I mean, like in that episode you're talking about in some future episode, right? Yeah, we talk can, about we can the talk generic. About I think so for sure. Specific. I think it's really interesting. I learned a lot. I, I you know, started my career. Uh, if I want to call it that, it's weird to say career, but I started with Jason in the startup side. You know, with the ideas and, and yeah. generating, and then I got the peer onto the investor side. It was pretty interesting how. You know, it, there is a lot of information asymmetry. I think that's a really important concept to keep in mind. You always know more about your startup than the investors do. And so mm-hmm. they're always a little more um, nervous about that. So anyway, we, we I learned a lot and maybe we could share some of it and mm-hmm. um, some of the, the stories with that because I think that might be fun. So let, let's let's leave all that for next yeah. show. We also, yeah. I also had a bunch. Of, I had some economics topics, and we can have we back do another we'll economic more economics. Show. Yeah, yeah. That. we went pure futurism this time. Now we did some incentives. We did a little incentives. Yeah, we, we did incentives. incentives. Yeah. <laughs> but I want to ask you one last thing. Oh, almost off the hook. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's about health. No. <laughs> <laughs> I, w- I just want to ask you how the seven minute a day workout is going. Did you keep it? Did you finish? Well, I've done my month. You did. You did complete. I, I've it. done my month. Yeah. Look, so now you actually did it or you just clicked on the no, box? No, no, I did it. I did. You can't just click on the box. You have to do it. Well, you could lie. Well, you you'd ha- you have to click on it and sit there and wait for it to finish at seven minutes. Oh, but okay. I wouldn't do that. But so you did it. So you completed you, it? I can't, yeah, I did. Right. So we owe you a prize. You do. We got to come up with a prize. Oh, we have, you guys we have, didn't negotiate that up front. We have a negotiated prize. prize. I will say there was some close calls where at like quarter to midnight, I'm in bed and I'm like reading the news and then I realize... Oh, I didn't do it today. I'm gonna have to jump out of bed and go uh, do the seven minute noble. workout. That's noble. That's awesome. <laughs> nice. So, did you you felt like this was motivating for you? Yeah, it's good. Okay. I'm gonna, I mean, I'm gonna stick with it. Like, I'm gonna oh, try great. and do. There you go. I, I mean, 
I'm not sure I feel massively different, but because it's just seven minutes. It's but all it is is a hook. Once I start right. doing the full press ups that we already discussed, then I'm gonna like start ramping it up. So right, yeah. very cool. Yeah. All right, that's good. Right. That's a win. Yeah, win. ending on an up note. Yay, that, you used to always end tech zings on doom and gloom down notes. Letters with, to the dark side. Letters yeah. to the dark side. That's you what, guys don't do that. We're gonna, we're gonna up finish up on a win. A win for Justin. Yeah. yeah. Nice. All right. End on an update. You, you, you thought you thought this was going to be a beat on Justin show, and there was you, I you did. Didn't, you didn't. There was no beating on Justin. Only only a little bit. Just really? at the beginning. Was there? <laughs> <laughs> and Phil. <laughs> Phil, who's the new bully in the schoolyard? I will not bully you. No, I care about you. I want to see you succeed. I'm not going to bully you. All right. Of course not. It's all. It's always done with love, right? Well, well yeah. Come from a place of love. That's right. All, All right, right well, I got to get out of here, so I guess that's that's it for today, right? All right, guys, well, that's a wrap. We're out.